in preparation for today, uh, I considered my new status as father and thought maybe I should speak on parenting while I still know everything, um, and then quickly realized that's, that's probably not what I should do. Um, so instead, we will be looking at the life of Joseph this morning, but thank you for praying for us. Thank you for praying uh, for us through the delivery process, through this first week. Um, God's been good. We're very grateful for Bailey, and Mom and Bailey are both doing well, and I'm doing okay too. So, All right, let's, let's look to the Lord in prayer uh, as we begin. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your goodness to us in giving us your word, and giving us your word that shows us you, that reveals yourself to us, reveals who you are, what you are doing in this world. We pray this morning that as we look at your word, we be refreshed, that we'd be rebuked, that you would convict us of sin and point us to Jesus Christ. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever gotten stuck? Ever gotten stuck in a situation, in a place? Having my roots in the Northeast, I have memories of being stuck, and many of them involve the winter. Uh, stuck in the snow, stuck riding a chairlift that stops, and now you're in the cold, the wind, sitting there, and you just want to ski, but you're stuck on a chairlift. I remember being stuck off the road in the snowbank with my brother's car at 2 o'clock in the morning. That was an interesting situation. Um, I remember getting a snowmobile stuck in the snow, a big snowbank. Something that all those situations have in common is that the person stuck is not in control. And so maybe I got myself into that situation, maybe there is a means of getting out of that situation, but really, the whole idea of being stuck is that we're not in control. Uh, I've owned several vehicles that have left me stuck at different times in different places. Sometimes all you can do is turn the car off and wait for help. Sometimes you don't even have to do that because the car already turned itself off. We all have experiences of being stuck, whether in a location, whether in a situation of life, things that we say, you know what, I'm not in control. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get myself out of this. In fact, I can't get myself out of this. Maybe you're here today and there's big or small circumstances forcing you to wait. You're eager for change in a situation, but you're either unable or you don't know how to change it. There can be big things. There can be small things. Big things like careers that we're stuck and waiting. Maybe sometimes it's just the frustration of sitting in traffic. Or maybe it's repeating a class, or it's a relationship, or something that just doesn't go right. And all those things, at the end of the day, we say, I wish it were different. I wish this situation were different. Sometimes we think life can get no worse, and then it does. Sometimes we think nothing good can come of this, and we don't see much good coming from this. Sometimes all we want to know is why. If I just knew why the situation was this way, then it would be okay. If I knew why I had to wait, I could be content with that. If I knew why, I wouldn't be frustrated. But we don't see a clear reason why. Do you ever feel like your life is going along with only a certain level of clear direction from God? You have biblical commands that tell you what to do, and yet you kind of want to know that maybe that bigger picture. What's, what's, what's 10 years from now? Where is all this leading? And in the moment, we don't have an answer to that. We're just not sure what's going on. Today we're going to look at someone who can relate, Joseph, Someone who can relate with being stuck, with changed plans, with delays, with life out of his own control. Someone who can relate to a daily living in a situation where, in the moment, he can't see why. A man living for a long time without even a clear, direct call from God to a specific task. But a man living by simple obedience. 
obedience in the face of a lot of uncertainty. You know the story of Joseph. You know how Joseph found himself in Egypt in a roller coaster of a career. Joseph had highs and lows. And today we'll especially focus on Joseph's time in Potiphar's house leading to his time in prison. And before we look at this portion of the narrative, I want to acknowledge that it's easy to jump to some quick takeaways. There's lots of lessons that we can learn from this passage. There's a lot of illustrations. The story of Joseph is full of good examples, good illustrations, and good things that we can learn in a lot of different ways. But my purpose this morning is especially to consider the particular emphasis that this narrative places in the life of Joseph. So as we look at Genesis 39 and 40, I want to focus on what does the Genesis author really emphasize in this narrative? We could draw other examples, and other biblical passages do that, and that's appropriate at times. But I want to focus on the emphasis of what the biblical author is trying to communicate here. Genesis, as you know, is a book about beginnings. It introduces us to God. It introduces us to our Creator, It shows us a God who cares when people sin, who cares enough to rescue sinners. He cares about Adam and Eve. He cares about Noah. And then we see God making a covenant with Abraham. We see how God called out Abraham to to, to make a nation of him and to bless, bless all nations through his descendants. And as we arrive at the Joseph narrative, we see God's covenant faithfulness in action. God's covenant faithfulness is very active, and yet so are man's problems. The family of Abraham is right to and beyond Joseph's time, more often than not, a mess. And we can relate with that. We see the family of Jacob has plenty of problems. As you know, Jacob was deceived into marrying Leah, a mistake that seems uh, rather bizarre and horrifying in our day. And Jacob was no less horrified the day after the wedding. And we see that that got things off to a rough start with that family. And it didn't get better as he added a wife and two of their friends. Um, So we start off with a messy family there. And then the brothers, they've got plenty of their own problems. And Jacob's picking favorites among his wives and his children only to complicate things further. This is the world that Joseph is born into. It's a world of deep-seated hurt. It's a world of constant friction. And from the first time we really meet Joseph, we see a young man who is largely rejected by his brothers. And we find a young man who his brothers find to be a a bit of a nuisance as he enjoys his favored status. Joseph is the, uh, the dreamer, the one whom God has given a dream pointing toward what he would do to put him in a unique position of power in the future. But Joseph sharing these dreams does nothing to endear him to his brothers or even his father. And you know how Joseph was going along one day sent by his father to check on his brothers, and they callously took him and sold him into slavery in Egypt, in their minds mercifully, because they didn't kill him. Uh, But they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And at this point, Joseph is almost certainly at the lowest point of his life so far, from the favored child to the slave trade, ripped out of his homeland, from his family, by his family. And Joseph had a lot of time to think on his way to Egypt. That's not just like walking from here to Anderson. That's walking some 300 miles or more. Uh, In kilometers, that would be 500 kilometers or more. Um, So Joseph has a long way to go. And all along that way, he's walking on dusty roads in the heat of the sun. He's not riding the the latest model of a chariot, most likely. He's walking. That's a long way to walk. I don't know what the farthest you've ever walked is. I have never walked close to that. I have never walked a tenth of that in a stretch. I have never walked... 
I have never walked even close to that. I can't comprehend walking 300 miles, okay? Joseph knew what it was like by the time he was done. What do you think he thought about on his way to Egypt? How did I get here? Why me? Why did I deserve this? Gone was Joseph's privilege. Gone was the protection from dad. Gone was his status as favored child. All he had left of any of that was memories. What he had was memories of what he had lost. He could have memories of his dysfunctional family background. He had many bad examples to look up to. Is Joseph just going to be another sad story in a dysfunctional family? A family of polygamy, adultery, an unloving husband-wife relationship, loss of a parent, a family with murder, incest, rivalry, fighting, arguing, scheming, favoritism. Is Joseph just going to be another one in that list? Now all he has is the unknowns. What's going to happen? If anyone understood the meaning of that's not fair or my life is out of control or why me, it was Joseph. Joseph was living very deeply feelings that are common to all of us at times. Feelings of disappointment. Feelings of loneliness. Feelings of confusion. Feelings of frustration. Feelings of being trapped with no way out. And those are real feelings in many ways. Uh, the Bible is, does not say that, hey, these feelings don't really exist. The Bible doesn't say, no, you're not really confused. Don't, don't worry about that. The Bible acknowledges that we have these feelings. And so that brings us to Genesis 39. And let's look at verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And here we see in Joseph's suffering, the Lord's presence. The Lord was with Joseph. We read that uh, right from the beginning there. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. We read again, the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Because of Joseph, the blessing of the Lord was on all that Potiphar had. And in these verses, we actually see the very first use of Yahweh in the Joseph narrative. In this chapter, it pretty much has the only uses of Yahweh in the Joseph narrative, and I don't think that's a mistake. The author here is especially directing us to God's covenant relationship with his people, God's covenant relationship that includes Joseph, God's faithfulness to Joseph. All the way through the introductory uh, portions of Joseph being sold, uh, captured by his brothers, later on, when Joseph is interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, we don't see the covenant name Yahweh appear as we do right here. This is no mistake. The author is emphasizing God's covenant relationship with Joseph. A little later in the chapter, we actually see the phrase steadfast love. For you Hebrew scholars, you might recognize the word chesed. God's faithfulness is covenant faithfulness. That God is fiercely loyal. God absolutely does not turn against his covenant. God is faithful to Joseph. This is what we see from the very moment Joseph arrives in Egypt, is that the Lord is with him. 
God is faithful to his covenant, therefore faithful to his people. In this place of suffering, God has not abandoned his people, right? That's a true and fairly generic statement. We could also say that God has not abandoned his person. And I don't mean that in the exclusive sense that Joseph is God's only person. But I mean that in an individual sense. That just as God cares about his people as a whole, he cares about his people individually. In our place of suffering, God does not abandon his people. God does not abandon his persons. And so even as we find ourselves in situations of confusion, disappointment, frustration, stuckness, God does not abandon his person. God's presence is shown here in the success that God grants in particular. Joseph became a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph found favor with the Egyptian. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. God makes Joseph very successful. These verses practically gush about how successful Joseph is, but it's not because of Joseph. The emphasis is not on how great Joseph is. The emphasis is on the Lord blessed Joseph. God makes Joseph very successful. And at this point, if I were Joseph, I might think... Wow, God brought me here, yes, through a lot of trials, but he has brought me here, apparently, to make me very successful in Potiphar's house, to actually have a good, fresh start at a new life, and it's going to be okay. I might think, I've had my trials, but it's all turned around, it's pretty good, it's, it's coming out okay, everything's okay, because my life is good now. And yet, is everything okay because life is good now? Is that where we find our confidence is that in my circumstances are good now, therefore everything in the past is okay. Well, introduce a new trial. We see Joseph's integrity. From the second half of verse 6, we'll read Genesis 39 uh, to verse 10. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. And here... We have a day-to-day, day-in, day-out trial for Joseph. And so as each morning, as Joseph goes to work, uh, some think that Joseph had more of an accounting status in the house, that he's not just, you know, scrubbing the pots and washing the floors, that Joseph may have had a a little bit more of a prestigious position because he's overseeing all these things. And so perhaps Joseph would go in and sit down at a table somewhere in in a common area of the house and pull out his books, or probably not books, maybe maybe slates or something, and start, start working. He would go to work doing his accounting thing. And each morning, maybe he'd glance up, see some motion, and he'd catch a wink from Potiphar's wife. Okay, that's a little weird. Um, she'd walk by the table, maybe a little bit too closely, wearing a little bit too much perfume. And he's, he's starting to get the idea of what's going on. A little head nod here. Uh, maybe she comments about the privacy they could enjoy. And if you think about Joseph, here's the rejected brother. Lonely in Egypt with a chance for an intimate companionship. He could be accepted. He's a handsome, attractive guy. He deserves this, right? And does God even really care about him? He could have all these questions. And yet the very things that we are tempted to use as excuses for sin, Joseph uses as reasons not to sin. 
Bible scholar Derek Kidner notes in his commentary that Joseph's reasons for refusal in verses 8 and 9 were those that another man might have given for yielding, given the, the neutral force of the circumstances. Everything else is being equal. His freedom from supervision, his rapid promotion, which have corrupted other stewards, and his realization that one realm only was barred from him. Potiphar had only held one thing back from him. Uh, having things held back is something that others, from Eve onwards, have uh, considered as frustration. These were all arguments to him, to Joseph, for loyalty. Joseph is not looking at these circumstances and saying, well, that gives me an excuse. I don't have supervision. I've been promoted so rapidly. He's holding this thing back. He doesn't use any of that as excuses. He uses all of that as an argument for loyalty. By giving the proposition its right name of wickedness, Joseph made truth his ally. And by relating all to God, he rooted his loyalty to his master deep enough to hold. Joseph acknowledges what's truly at stake, that this is wickedness. It's not just a privilege that he could enjoy. It's not just getting around his master's back. It's wickedness. It's related to God. It's not just about an interpersonal relationship with the woman or with his master. It's about his relationship with God. He relates all to God and roots his loyalty to his master deep enough to hold. And Joseph repeatedly passes this test. Each morning he goes into work. Consistently. He sits down, perhaps. He notices Mrs. Potiphar entering the room. Again, he doesn't even look up anymore. Pays no attention. He counters and rejects her words. Joseph won't even begin to entertain her sinful ideas. When she lingers around, he leaves. Finally, she gets more forceful, grabbing him by the tunic, and he flees. And so for Joseph, for his obedience, surely God will bless him. And yet now we see a false accusation, and Joseph's life again spirals out of control. Mrs. Potiphar accuses Joseph to the servants and then to her husband, and it's an accusation full of lies. It's this minority laborer that you've brought here. This Hebrew slave, this immigrant transient, you brought him here to mock me. And as soon as Joseph's master, look at verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Uh, It's very possible that Potiphar had just a little bit of doubt about Mrs. Potiphar's story. Uh, the death penalty would seem very likely if Joseph truly attempted to force himself on Mrs. Potiphar. Um, and so the fact that Potiphar says, no, I'm going to throw you into prison, just leaves that little bit of doubt. Did, did Potiphar really fully believe the story? And yet, for Joseph, he's in prison. Again, he's stuck. He's not in control. Talk about being stuck in a rut, going from bad to worse to worse, thrown forcefully into prison. Joseph had only done what was right, and it looks like his actions were a total failure. It was useless. Why bother? If living for God leads to that, why? But as soon as Joseph lands in prison, look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, chesed, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so the first thing we see after Joseph lands in prison, again, is the Lord, Yahweh. 
God's covenant faithfulness to His people and His person. God's steadfast love. Again, God's presence is seen in the success and favor that Joseph receives. The Lord gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And again, we see the hand of the Lord in Joseph's success. It's not about how great Joseph is that Joseph uh, achieves all of this of his own, but it's through the Lord's favor. God gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and over time, he gained a certain level of trust through his faithfulness. And this, this uh, favor came in the form of responsibility. And it appears that Joseph had a certain level of flexibility. He was responsible for a lot. He's certainly not in solitary confinement or even chained to the wall 24-7. It makes you wonder if Joseph at times grabbed a key to let himself into his jail cell at night and then locked himself up and hung the key outside the cell wall on a nail. Um, but make no mistake... This is prison. Joseph is held against his will. That's very clear in the next chapter. He does not have illustrious career opportunities. He is stuck. And yet we see God's hand over the big circumstances and the little. God is caring for Joseph's interpersonal relationships. And over time, God brings two prisoners that are under Joseph's care. And Joseph is consistently helpful and faithful And as you know, these prisoners tell Joseph that they had some dreams. And Joseph says, well, dream interpretations belong to God. Why not tell them to me? Joseph, through all this, though, has not forgotten the injustice. Towards the end of chapter 40, he says, Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And yet Joseph was forgotten. So at this point, we've got a pretty bleak picture of Joseph's circumstances. And yet in all of this, we see the same consistent life in Joseph. Joseph was faithful in the little things in Potiphar's house, and God brought him to a place of great success. Joseph was faithful in the little things in prison, and God brought him to a place of trust. Joseph did the little things that allowed the prison to operate smoothly, He was making the world a better place in the place of his calling. He certainly didn't choose that place in prison, but it was what God had for him. Could Joseph possibly know why at that point? Joseph did not know why he was there. Did he know how long he would be there? No, he only hoped to get out. There was no end in sight, though. And so Joseph found opportunity to make a difference in an inconvenient place. I don't know the details of his responsibilities, Maybe he was overseeing a crew stamping out license plates for Egyptian chariots. More likely, he was helping pass out rations. He was helping scrub, clean, dumping sewage. I don't know everything that Joseph did, but it probably wasn't that glamorous. And yet, he had a certain level of trust and responsibility. And still, through all of that, Joseph did right regardless of the outcome. There's a time and place for... I don't know how this will turn out well, but I know what God has commanded me to do. And even as we reach this point in the narrative, it seems at the end of chapter 39 through chapter 40 and on from there, we have the same Joseph that we do in chapter 39 in verse 1 and 2. I'm not saying that Joseph doesn't grow spiritually because I believe he does. But I do think the main emphasis in these chapters is not on Joseph's change, but on his consistency. 
we get a good look at his character, but not a close look at his character development. The narrative isn't showing us a dramatically changing Joseph. It's showing us a Joseph who is faithful to God as a slave, as a manager, as in temptation, in prison. And we'll continue to see that. And so I think that the force of this narrative is not about God preparing Joseph, although I think there are clear indications that God does prepare Joseph. Our Joseph spoke last week at some length on God's work in Joseph's life of training him, showing us what Psalm 105 teaches very clearly. And Joseph is an excellent example of God testing and training. That's what the psalmist points out. But the writer here in the Joseph saga, he is making a different emphasis, I believe. I don't believe that the force of this narrative is just about God testing and training Joseph. And so I'm pausing here for a moment because I want to emphasize that while God uses trials to grow us, that is true, it's always true. Trials grow us, James chapter 1. While God uses trials to grow us, that's not the only reason that we endure trials. We ought to ask in trials, what can I learn? What will God do in me? How will God change me? What do I need to do differently? We ought to ask those questions. But those are not the only questions and not the only perspective. Sometimes we must pause and acknowledge, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what God's doing, but I do know I can trust him. I don't know why God brought me here, but I do know I can trust his covenant faithfulness. I don't know what God will teach me in the coming days, but I do know how I must respond. Joseph's life has repeatedly spiraled out of control, and we all feel that at times. Have you felt it in a job, a relationship, maybe even in a small way, in a conversation? Even as I was preparing this message, I was thinking of a conversation that I really don't want to have, but I might have to have. How will I respond? If I have to have that conversation, I end up not in control. And yet, I do know what God says about my conversation and how it should be. I do know what God says about the believer's communication. And so we find ourselves in circumstances that are out of our control. We don't know why. And yet we do have commands from God for how we should respond. And so Joseph was as stuck as anyone could be stuck. He's in prison. Life has gone from pretty good to really bad to not so bad to even worse. In fact, Joseph spends some 13 years of the prime of his youth as a slave and a prisoner. From around the time of 17 to around the time of 30, it's obvious Joseph is not in control. He's bouncing between slavery, manager in Potiphar's house, prisoner, all of his 20s, the last part of his teenage years. Joseph's not in control. But, if, but we would be wrong to imagine that Joseph's situation is out of control because it is in God's control. And that is the big unifying action of the whole story of Joseph. God is sovereign through difficult circumstances, in particular to preserve people. Joseph states this outright in chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, Don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God as for you? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph, looking back, could see all of that. While Joseph was in prison, God is already rescuing the family of Jacob and many families throughout the land when they cannot possibly see or foresee their need of rescue. God's good and sovereign hand is over all of these circumstances. God is overseeing all these events to accomplish his purposes. Indeed, Joseph is not in control. Joseph's life shows us a man who God calls on to wait for his own purposes. And there's an important important point here. Joseph's story is not all about Joseph. 
Is that hard to hear? Is that hard to agree with? My purpose today is not to give a full theology of suffering, but I think I should make a few acknowledgments. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm making a particular emphasis here, and so because I make one emphasis, it doesn't mean that these other things are not true or they don't matter. Um, Joseph spent a good amount of time on the value of training through suffering. Okay, I'm not spending a lot of time there, but it's 100% true, and I agree with that. So don't hear what I'm saying and saying, "Oh, well, that Tim doesn't believe that God trains people through suffering." Okay, that's if you, if you if that's what you hear, you totally missed totally missed it. Um, God uses suffering for many purposes. The discipline. Uh, and rebuke of a wayward child, or the testing and training and growing of his own children. God refines us, as Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come out as gold. And God does use these trials in Joseph's life. God is working things together for good for his people. Romans 8 teaches this clearly. God uses suffering in our lives so that at times we can help other people. This is what 2 Corinthians says in chapter 1, verse 4. God uses suffering to directly glorify himself. Think of the man born blind whom Jesus heals. And yet, in the moment, at times, we don't see all the answers to all these questions. We don't see how it's working out to good, for good. We don't see how it's helping us help other people. We don't see uh, maybe, maybe even everything that we're learning or that we're going to learn. We don't see all the answers to all those things. And so Joseph's story is not all about Joseph. And so may I suggest that your story is not all about you. My story is not all about me. There's something bigger going on here. Yes, it includes you, right? Joseph's story, well, he is the guy, and so, yeah, it includes him, and there's a lot about him, and there's a lot that God's doing in his life. And our own stories include ourselves. Uh, we are the ones growing, learning, suffering, enduring, learning patience. Yes, our stories include us, but sometimes there's something bigger that we don't understand. And even in Joseph's life, I think it would be wrong to think that God had to bring Joseph to prison to give him an audience with Pharaoh so that he could rescue Egypt and the surrounding lands and be united with his family and be fabulously wealthy and so on. Did Joseph have to have his reputation tarnished so badly? Similarly, Potiphar is listed as an officer of Pharaoh, just as the butler and baker were officers of Pharaoh. God could have gained Joseph an audience with Pharaoh other ways. Did it have to be a 13-year roller coaster, or why couldn't it all have happened at the last minute? You know, everything's going real smoothly up until Joseph's about, you know, 27, 28, 29, and then boom, to Egypt, to prison, to Pharaoh, and it all happens in a matter of a month, and life is good. That's not what God did. And so it's good to consider what God is and might be doing through our circumstances, and yet we also have to acknowledge that at times we simply don't know why. And Joseph, as he is living these moments, doesn't have the benefit of reading his story in hindsight. He doesn't have the 2020 vision of looking back and saying, oh, this is exactly what's happening. No, Joseph is living this in the moment. And that is how our own stories often go. We're living through trials, and maybe a month later, ten years later, we see you know what? God brought me through that back then, and it actually it actually kind of makes sense. But does that help us in the moment? Because it doesn't make sense in the moment. I think as we read the story of Joseph, sometimes knowing the ending softens the story. We're like, yeah, yeah, he's in prison, but it's going to get better. Well, what about our own lives? 
You know, you, do you want someone to come to you and say, yeah, yeah, but it's going to get better. Just don't worry about it. Well, no, that's not really the point. Don't worry about it is not the point. The point is God was with Joseph. God was covenantly faithful to his person while Joseph was in prison, while Joseph was in Potiphar's house, and Joseph responded in faithfulness to the Lord. The end of the Joseph story is indeed glorious. It's exciting. It's fun. I love reaching that point because all the the twists and turns, I believe it's really one of the greatest stories ever written, ever told, and it's true. And that should give us hope because the end of our stories is also clearly laid out in Scripture. You know, I can say we don't know the end of our stories, and there's a sense in which that's true. I could also say we know the end of our story, and that is also true. The end of our story is we will see Jesus, and when we see him, we will be like him. 1 John 3, 2. And so even as we look at Joseph and say, well, yeah, we know the end of the story, and so that takes some of the sting out of it, can we look at our own lives and say, you know what? I actually know the end of the story, and that takes some of the sting out of it. It doesn't mean that loneliness doesn't exist. Loneliness is real. It doesn't mean that disappointment isn't real. Disappointment is real. Frustration is real. The questions, the whys, it's all real. And yet, the end of the story is glorious. And we must learn to be content as Joseph was with the knowledge that we have a sovereign God. We don't always understand the how and the why, and we must be content with that. And knowing God's sovereign power is comforting, but only if, only if God is both sovereign and he cares about me. If we're all pawns in a big dualistic chess game that God is just destined to win anyways, what's the point? Kill me now. If it's all fatalistic, suffering without a purpose, without hope, why bother? You know, when I play chess, which is quite rarely and quite poorly, um, I have no covenant loyalty towards pawns. They are pieces to get rid of because then the game ends. God has covenant loyalty for his people. God's sovereign plan is comforting because... God simultaneously cares deeply for you as a person. We see that God cares deeply about Joseph and God cares deeply about us. The Lord was with Joseph. We see that repeated so many times. God says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord was doing something great with Joseph's future. The Lord is bringing us to eternal joy and eternal rest. And as Joseph entered and lived through what we might see from a human perspective as a most futile 13-year rat race, A race to the top of slave status, a race to the top of prisoner status. A rat race is not what God saw, and it's not what Joseph saw either. God saw a magnificent rescue operation in progress. Yahweh was taking care of the fledgling nation of Israel before they knew they needed protection. God saw one of his own, one of his loved ones. And God showed covenant faithfulness to Joseph. And Joseph saw the care of the hand of his good God. Joseph had accurate expectations for an end hope given to him by God in his childhood dream. And Joseph responded with obedience. And so when we find ourselves waiting for a relationship to smooth over, when we find ourselves waiting for that next step in career, when we find ourselves waiting and frustrated and disappointed and why here, why now, why me? When we find ourselves frustrated by a boss or by a teacher, or by a student, or an employee. How has God already commanded us to respond? 
when we find ourselves lonely, looking for friends, tempted by the ungodly of this world, how has God commanded us to respond? There is a time and place for trust and obey. And I think that's what Joseph was living. He was living trust and obey. I don't know the why. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I do know my God. And I can trust him, and I must obey him. And we have hope. At the beginning of the Joseph narrative, we see God give dreams that indicate Joseph will one day rise to a great position. I suspect that God perhaps often reminded Joseph of that hope. And indeed, God did rescue Joseph out of his affliction. In our trials, we too have hope. We have hope that God will eternally rescue us out of our affliction. Jesus endured for the joy set before him. The love of Jesus grounds us and stabilizes us and gives us hope in every circumstance. Romans 8 has so much to say about this. What can separate us from the love of God? And a whole big list of circumstances, of all of which are unpleasant, out of our control, frustrating, disappointing, not easy. And sometimes we wouldn't even know exactly why. And yet we can say, it's not going to separate me from the love of God. Romans 8 also tells us of a God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? God has given us Jesus. God has given us hope in Jesus. Jesus has set the example for us in suffering. And Jesus endured for the joy set before him, looking to that end of hope. Peter could say, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. We can rejoice amid our suffering. And we have a hope that every event can bring us closer to the likeness and very presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we see in this section of the narrative that God was fiercely loyal to Joseph. And if you are God's child, God is fiercely loyal to you as well. And so then the question for us is, will I trust him and will I obey him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that gives us hope that you are at work in our trials, at work in ways that we cannot see, that we don't understand, and that perhaps at times we won't understand for many, many years. Or maybe we won't even understand in this life. Help that not to discourage us. We pray that you would give us uh, hearts that are willing to trust you and at times maybe even just step back from uh, all the introspection and step back and say, you know what, God? I know that you're for me. I know that you're not against me. I know that you are faithful to me. And so what do you want me to do? And help us to obey and be faithful and not make excuses out of our trials, but to be faithful through them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.